You're listening to Tone Vendors, the Sound Designers Podcast. Let's do this. Hello and welcome to Tone Menders, where we talk to the sonic artists behind our favorite films, series, and games. My name is Tim Muirhead and I will be your host for today. We're talking today about the new Amazon Prime film from director Nyatu Jusu called Nanny. Because it's a Blumhouse produced project and how the trailer is presented, I went into this film thinking that it was going to be a horror film. But it really isn't. It's more of a haunting film. With very few exceptions, the normal trappings of a horror film are nowhere to be found. But the mood and the vibe of the film is something special that keeps you leaning in and focused on the screen. A lot of the heavy lifting for creating that haunting feeling while watching The Nanny is done by the film's soundtrack, and we are lucky enough to have the sound team with us today. First up, we have the film's supervising sound editor, Dave Flinch. Welcome to Tonebenders. It's great to meet you, Dave. Great to meet you as well. Thanks for having me. No problem. We also have the film's sound designer, Paul Sue. How are you doing today, Paul? Good. Nice to see you. Excellent. So as I just mentioned, the film's ambience, the tone, the vibe is like a major player in this film. And there seems to be a difference between when our main character is being a nanny in the rich people's condo and when she's in what I will call the real world outside of the condo. And I was wondering if you could maybe talk to me about when you first sat down with the director and maybe for a spotting session or how that was discussed and how you came to uh, what you ended up with. Paul, do you want to take that first? Uh, yeah, sure. I would actually say there's sort of three worlds, right? Like you said, there's the, the workplace, which has its own overly special insular environment. There's the real world, and then there's her subconscious, what she's bringing with her, which we don't really quite know what that is, and we're learning that over time. And I think that's what's beautiful about the film, is it's that those three worlds juxtaposed is what Nikias is trying to show us, you know, that it's, it's not so simple. Like, you know, you're in the real world, you're in this challenging work environment, and then maybe you're carrying a lot of other, you know, baggage, for lack of a better word, that is literally haunting. And so how those three worlds intersect was the whole thing. And I think he actually gave us a really a good blueprint for that of like, you know, how those things interact and how we dip in and out of those worlds, you know, was the whole job in a way. Dave? Yeah, Paul's exactly right. There's these three worlds that we have to sort of navigate. When we first initially meet Aisha in her world and in the initial setting that she's in, we have to establish where she is. So we go along and we sort of like create that backdrop of living in a city, living in Harlem, really. And then once she starts to navigate into Amy and Adam's world, we start to get sort of like a change in tonality. Once we're inside the apartment, it sounds very different from what it sounds like in Aisha's world. But as the story progresses, those two worlds kind of converge. And what we thought exists only in Aisha's environment now also exists in the chaos that ensues because not just Aisha's life is transforming, Amy's life is also transforming as well. And those two worlds start to converge. And at a certain part, it crescendos. And that's where Paul's design starts to really take shape and take over. One of the things we did talk about is sort of like really being mindful of these big moments that were about to happen later on in the film. So things feel a bit subdued as we work our way through the film. And then we start to get snippets of what's to come, and it just continues to build from there. How do you differentiate between the two? So can you explain how you tackled the condo? So in Amy's world, in, in her condo, she's downtown. She's in this fancy high-rise building, this airy loft. We 
get a bit of traffic, but we don't hear as much. And we definitely don't hear voices and things of that nature. We hear a lot of the internal things that's going on in the apartment, the elevators, uh, movement in the apartment, things of that nature. But it's relatively quiet, as you might expect an expensive, fancy home to be in this environment. It's different from what we hear in Aisha's world, where we hear call outs from the street and traffic and things of that nature. So part of what happens throughout the film, particularly in Aisha's world, we get time of day. So there are areas when we know what time of day it is because of the traffic and because of what's going on. That is detailed in the sound design early on. So we differentiate those two spaces based on how much information we allow to exist in those two worlds. Amy's world is a lot more subdued and quiet as we travel in her world, but it also gets chaotic at a certain point too. And then it expands from there. In addition to what you're saying, so when, when we're in Amy's condo, Amy is the employer of the titular nanny character, Aisha. When we're in her condo, it's very quiet. At times it almost feels sterile. And then another plot of the film is a budding romance between Aisha and the doorman of the condo building. And when they're out on a date, the world is alive. Everything is happening around them. They're in busy restaurants. They're driving through traffic. And it makes that romance feel so much more magical when it's juxtaposing with the uh, very sterile location of her work environment. And I thought that was really great. Like, I loved the romance scenes, the date and everything like that. It really felt alive. And I guess that's because it was contradicting the main location of the film. Yeah, I think that that's one of the things that Nikiatu specified to us, how she wanted that world outside of those two environments to be particularly different. And it's what you're saying. It's very vibrant. You know, we're in the restaurant, we're hearing a lot that's going on in the restaurant, out in the street, we hear traffic and, and things that you would expect in normal circumstances. And then we get to places where the music really takes over and there is minimal sound there, but the sound is designed to really support the music in certain places. And it happens in various places. As Aisha is traveling in a car throughout the neighborhood, Malik and Aisha traveling from a date, you know, all those different places where we sort of chose moments where we can underscore the, the music to a certain extent to really sort of give it another level. But we try to do it pretty tastefully without stepping on any element and giving it its full play, essentially. In addition to the work you did with sound, obviously, uh, this comment doesn't have anything to do with sound, but the chemistry between those two actors is amazing. You almost want them to star in a rom-com next together because they were magic on screen together. Paul, you mentioned uh, the third world, which is this kind of uh, non-reality world, maybe we'll call it. Uh, <laughs> how did you tackle those moments? For me, the technique of doing sound design and creating a you know, soundtrack for a film, the technical parts of it in a way are almost easy by comparison. You know, there's making loud sounds or making things that are evocative is honestly, a lot of times not that hard. What's harder is creating the nuance. And so that stuff all really plays off of the things in the script that Nikiatu had already brought there. You know, the elements of water and the elements of memory. And, and that's the part that I think it's really, we don't talk as much about this stuff as I think we should in, in these kinds of things, which is, it's so much about taste and sensibility and the real difference and the reason why certain directors work with certain crew and the privileged environment that we are lucky to be part of, a, a really intensely creative environment, so much of that comes down to taste. And that's where Nikiatu and I definitely, and Dave, we all got along initially very quickly in that way where it's about actually dialing things back 
So you have sort of like these signposts of like these elemental sounds that are going to work. And then what we really talked about and really tried to do over the course of time was how do we pair it back and back and back and back so that it's very subconscious. It's very like only operating almost at an emotional level, saving the big moments for the really key areas so that you're sort of pulling the audience along in this suggestive way and then picking your battles in a way, right? Where it's like the big moments are big, not just wallpapering the whole thing with a lot of big sounds. I think you gain a lot of emotional and creative capital by like laying back and letting the stuff be as dreamy and as subconscious as you can and then letting the big moments happen. Well, you mentioned water sounds. The very first thing we hear in the film, the film opens up with a shot of Aisha sleeping but we're hearing water sounds. Now, later on in the film, you start understanding what the water sounds are. But at that point in time, you're hearing some water, but I wasn't really sure why. And then you see a little bit of water movement. Mm -hmm. So water, obviously, for those who haven't seen the film, water is a major theme. And I was wondering if you guys could talk about how you went about very subtly bringing water elements into the soundtrack. Well, there's two things there. First, which is a slight digression, which is that the title you described, the thing that was most important to me is the transition. The choices when you're in a mix and when you're doing sound design, it sounds sort of trite in a way, but the thing I find that it's actually most effective is the simple choice of do you fade or do you cut? Do you cross the picture cut or do you emphasize it? Do you play against it or to it? And that's a key element in that opening of like making the choice to not emphasize the title, for example, or to wash over it, you know? Uh, no pun intended, and, and that's the that's the thing that we were going for. And in terms of like where the water sounds come from, Nikiatsu quickly got with, a, you know, agreed with a technique which I'm a huge fan of, which is not being so literal about this idea of you have a motif for each character and you use each one in this blueprint way, which a lot of filmmakers work that way, and I understand how it can be functional, but I kind of prefer the sort of wandering through the process to find, you know, to find your way. And that's what we did. So basically, as we worked through the sound design and the scenes, Nikiatsu would respond to certain sounds. And then you loop back on yourself and you start putting those sounds in other places. And that's, to answer your question in a long-winded way, that's how we came to those sounds at the beginning, because those were things that we had worked into at the end. And then sort of counterintuitively, we're like, well, what if we take those and we introduce those earlier in a way that doesn't even really make sense, but is sort of baiting the audience. We're putting this thing out there that is going to be significant later, but has no real purpose at that point, but makes you feel something, essentially, you know? So, Dave, were those decisions made in the editorial stage, at the end of the editorial stage, or once you got in the mix room? No, we made those decisions early on. So Nikiatu was very involved in that entire process, as Paul was saying. So Paul would do versions and have Nikiatu give feedback on it, and she'd come in as well and listen to some things early on. So we had a good sort of reference point to work from. And from there, as Paul was mentioning, the elements that really started to play, and we had to differentiate between the two menacing characters in the film, the Mamawata Anansi characters. And we had to find sounds that signified those two characters. And throughout the film, we had to kind of separate them. And music does a good job of creating those distinct moments as well. But yeah, it was definitely a journey in terms of what Paul created in the beginning and then using those elements later on in the film and then building up on top of those as we heighten towards those really big moments. The one thing that Paul mentioned I wanted to underscore is that at every aspect of the sound design, we want to try to hold back as much as we can. So we've done that with backgrounds and effects and things of that nature, kept everything pretty 
basic for the most part because we knew these big moments were going to come. So we wanted the audience to really absorb that and not have this idea of these elements constantly being thrown at them at every step of the way, sort of like these tropes that people tend to use in other type of films that are similar to this. This is not similar to your basic horror film for sure. So you mentioned the two uh, mystical, maybe, uh, characters in the film, Anatsi and Amiwata. How do you go about sound designing for shadows and water movements and stuff like that? Um, I'll let Paul take this one. I think, I think he'll do a better job with this. <laughs> I, I mean, I probably would get into a respectful disagreement with uh, you know other sound designers, but personally, I would say trial and error. It's like you, you go with your gut, but hopefully you're going for something that's so esoteric that you don't know how someone's going to react. And the first audience member is the director, right? So you sit and you work on the scene for a day, you're convinced it's right. And then she comes in to watch, you press play and you look over and she has a very sort of pensive scowl on her face. Like, okay, well, I guess that's not working. <laughs> guess audience member number one didn't get that. So you have to sort of just, you know, work your way through those ideas. And I, I you know, of course, there's a logic to it of trying to connect sounds that you think represent what you're seeing visually. Um, mm. But I prefer just to go with my gut, just like, what does it feel like? Try something or even the, you know, I'm a huge fan of the happy accident, keeping whatever tool we're using, you know, I'm using at the time, they're like designy type tools, just basically leave it open and record and just play around until I bump into something that, you know, sort of, I think I know where I'm going, but then eventually I'm going to fall onto something that I didn't really mean. So if I can capture that and find a way to use that as a jumping off point. And then play for the director. And if she responds well, then just build from there. And again, in this movie, the, the shadow play and the sense of like imagined versus real nightmare, all that stuff. Again, it's a taste thing. And for me, it, it's the, the more subversive and suggestive you can be rather than literal, the better. So when you're roaming around trying and failing and succeeding, you said you were in Sound Miner, for instance. Do you mean like pulling out the sequencer within Sound Miner or just looking for sounds or how do you go about that? Different ways, but a lot of it is, I don't know, I'm a big fan of the sort of the circular sound design creation process where you make sounds or you pull from libraries or recordings that you've done maybe for other movies or specifically for this movie and just wander as much as you can. So just try to follow your instincts and play with things that feel right, you know, manipulating with the tools that we know we have, pitch and reverb and that kind of stuff, just to try to like create something that feels new, but also familiar in a way that has a narrative function. Mm -hmm. And so I was being literal, like I just stay and record a lot, like going to Soundminer and go through various either libraries that I've created for the project itself or other films that I've done that I know have similar ideas in them and create a, a running recorded file of what I'm doing so that at the moment that I make a mistake that I didn't realize was good, I have it on tape and then I can go back and use that as a jumping off point or find similar things. It's funny because it actually relates to scoring as well, in my opinion. Like There's a dearth of original score and sound design in general, in my opinion, in filmmaking. And because we know what to do too well in a way, right? So I'm trying to throw myself off. I know intellectually what I want, but what if I bump into something else that I didn't think was good? Maybe that's going to be the thing that's actually interesting and new in some way. Mm -hmm. Well, in order for that to happen, though, you also have to be both given the luxury and be smart enough to budget the time to do that. Because what you're saying, a lot of times people are just going straight to the bullseye with their hammer because they got to get it done in the next blank amount of time. So that's a great luxury and also something that everyone should try and plan for to have that time to experiment. Yeah, exactly. And it's interesting because that's, I think, from a sound design perspective and scoring perspective, I'm sure you've seen there's lots of 
back and forth these days about streaming versus real quote unquote film, like, you know, Scorsese and other people are notorious for, you know, saying pretty incendiary things about what, what a movie is and what isn't. You know, I'm not going to get into that because, you know, people enjoy entertainment for the reasons they do. But personally, exactly what you're saying, Tim, it's like, that's why I, I prefer a more filmic approach because we have the luxury to do that. And we have the time to really explore things for a piece of content, which if it was an episodic thing or something that wasn't slated for a specific theatrical release, you just don't have the time. You just have to deliver quickly. You know, that has its own merits and it can be fun in a certain way. Right. But yeah, we're, we're lucky to be part of a, something which still has sort of a, an artistic bent enough where there's just time to wander around and play with things and try to come up with something that is a little more esoteric. So have you guys worked together before this film? Oh yeah, Paul and I have worked together on a bunch of projects. Skip as well. So we we all come from the same group in New York, essentially. Paul and I actually met working on a film that Skip was supervising, and we developed a friendship from there and a working relationship. And we've all worked together in New York and other places, I'm sure. Obviously, it's a pretty small community, but everyone kind of has their group and their homes to a certain extent. And all three of us have worked with each other quite a bit. And it extends, that's what I was sort of hinting at earlier, it extends to the director as well, which the way you end up working with certain directors, I, I have a theory about that being actually the most important thing, because like I was saying before, there's really no accounting for taste. If you're working at a certain level of proficiency, everybody's really good. Like everybody has the skills to do the job. What we're talking about is the more rarefied aspect of how it is you really vibe and gel with someone whose artistic sense and way of going about the work is similar. And personally, I, I found the Kiatu really delightful in that way, even though she's not as an experienced filmmaker as some of the other New Yorkers that we've worked with. She has the same approach. That's three-fourths of the battle because you can find yourself with someone who sort of speaks a different artistic language and you're just constantly hitting dead ends because you don't fundamentally come from a similar place. And that was the real joy of working with her, where she was like, we're, we're sort of coming from a baseline that's similar. And then you have all kinds of fun from there. But at that key approach is really that worldview in a way, right? It's really important. She was at the screening that I saw and she did a question and answer period afterwards. And someone started their question by saying, uh, this is a comment, not a question. And she just cut them off and did like a stand-up comedy routine, basically about how you should never ask a director something starting with that. <laughs> and great. it was pretty funny. She commanded the audience really well. So she seemed like she would be a, a really great person to work with from the limited uh, exposure I got to her, but she seemed really great. Yeah. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Well, that's the other thing that we, we don't talk about much is the, uh, that's a good example, Tim, is I realized that personally, I really, I think I only really enjoy working with directors who are, to the average person, I think acerbic would be an understatement. And it's <laughs> where, where we, but, but there's so much, it's, it's hard to, I really wish there was a way, and one day I'm going to find a way to capture this for an outsider. That experience of being on a mixing stage with two or three or six really, really deeply intelligent and deeply creative people. And if they saw us, interacting the way we disagree or the way we like shut each other down and it's all done with such full respect and love for the process but if they just popped in for a second and saw us they'd be like what the hell is going on here like what, <laughs> why is everyone such an asshole and it's like that's for us that's just normal your idea better be good because if you're not you're going to get a look from four really smart people who are going to be like uh no we're not doing that <laughs> I, I've, I've realized over the years i really enjoy that environment i'm really grateful to be in that environment because it's not everywhere that you have that level of uh, intensity right and you have such limited time too so you you really need to get yourself together it's not poor folks who have thin skin for sure 
because it's really about doing your very best at the job. So each thing is really meant to challenge you and push you to that end. So it's refreshing when you get people who know what they want and aren't afraid to express that. That gives us better direction in terms of what we should do as well. So I enjoy that atmosphere as well. There is like a weird thing when you're starting out in sound, finding out where that line is of where, you know, you don't want to be arguing something just because it's your ego. You know, I cut that, get that in. But you also don't want to feel like you're uh, causing trouble, like finding that line of where to pick your battles and stuff like that is something that, you know, everyone goes to sound school and stuff like that. But that's not something you learn in school. That's something you have to learn in the fire of being in that room at that time. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, there are times when I've cut things and, you know, I swear that it's the best and we get on the stage and the director is like, what is that? <laughs> and we just immediately just throw it out and keep it moving because not everything is going to work, regardless of how much time you put into it. But you can't take any of that stuff personally because that's what you're there for, you know, to offer suggestion, to offer options, to steer the film in a predictable direction or not. But either way, you have to be open that you're going to be challenged in some way. So you can't be afraid to put it out there. Yeah, and there's a very, I think there's almost a corollary to the Buddhist uh, mandala, you know, sort of thing where it's like, if you have the right grounding and sort of viewpoint, it's actually good for your soul. Because if you can learn a lack of attachment to really give your all, put it all out there, knowing that, yeah, you might just have to take the broom and just <laughs> wipe it yeah. clean and start again. It's, I think it's actually exactly. really good for you. Like, it's, you just, but you have to embrace it for sure. Yeah. You got to be flexible for sure. So uh, one last just quick question. What was the name of the film that you both worked on for the first time that Skip brought you together for? <laughs> you remember, Do you Dave? remember? I do, yeah. It was called Death to Smoochie. Oh, Death to Smoochie. Robin <laughs> Williams, right? right? <laughs> um, Robin Williams was the lead, but uh, Dane DeVito directed it. Yeah. Oh, okay. Um, and Skip supervised it. Yeah. So Paul and I were, were, we were young editors pups, on, yeah. that, <laughs> on that film. And um, yeah, yeah. But we've struck up a great relationship since then, and you know we've worked together on a bunch of things since then, so it's great. Awesome. Thank you very much for talking to me today. Uh, I really enjoyed the film. It had a great mood to it. I think you guys did a great job, so thanks a lot for talking to us about it. Well, we appreciate the time, man. Thank awesome. you. Thanks a lot, Tim. Yeah. Before I let you go, I want to send out a big thanks to Cameron Naylor for volunteering to edit this episode. Cameron is an electroacoustic composer, field recordist, and sound designer working across theatre, film, and radio in and around the UK. For inquiries or collaborations, you can find all his information over at CameronNaylor.com. N-A-Y-L-O-R.com. Thanks, Cameron. It was fun collaborating with you on this. For all his hard work, Cameron will be getting a copy of the amazing sound library, Sonic Springs, from Katrina Amsler. If you stay tuned to the very end, you can hear some of the amazing sounds in this collection. Big thanks to Katrina for donating this library to our volunteer collaborators. That's it for now. My name is Timothy Muirhead. Thanks for listening to Tonebenders. Tonebenders is produced by Timothy Muirhead, Renee Coronado, and Teresa Morrow. Theme music is by Mark Strait. Send your emails to info at tonebenderspodcast.com. Follow us on Twitter via at the Tonebenders and join Tonebenders Podcast on Facebook. Support this podcast. You can use our links when you shop with Amazon or B&H or leave us a tip. Just go to tonebenderspodcast.com and click the support button. Thanks for listening. Are you looking for more audio-related podcasts to listen to? Tonebenders is part of the Audio Podcast Alliance, 
featuring a hand-picked selection of the very best podcasts about sound. Be sure to hear the latest episodes from our friends in the community at audiopodcast.org. Thank mm-hmm. you.